This is uh, part of my recent research, and uh, I've uh, given it a slightly provocative title. We usually hear about art for art's sake. Uh, sometimes we hear about science for science's sake. Uh, but what I really wanted was uh, to start with a bit of a provocative thought. What can art really do for science? And if you are somebody like me, who has worked on the connections between art and science uh, for a very long time, um, you might suspect that there is something very interesting about the parallel histories of art and science. And there are some magical moments in history where art and science really collide and beautiful things happen. So this talk is about the beautiful things that happen when art and science collide and when artists actually uh, manage to genuinely contribute to the growth of the scientific knowledge. The underlying, uh, let's say, philosophical assumption in my work is that there is a sense in which if we go and look at history, art has actually genuinely contributed to the growth of scientific knowledge. And therefore, this is a bit of an invitation to artists uh, so that they can pay attention uh, uh, at those rare moments in which their art collides with science. And it's also an invitation to scientists to keep an open mind because we shouldn't really confine uh, the boundaries of science within science itself. So what I want to do today is really test uh, my claim across three key moments or three key sets of concepts uh, that have characterized scientific practice. And I want to look at how artists fed into this story. One is the idea that uh, much of scientific practice is about idealizing and coming up with idealized representations, starting from what we encounter in nature. Another issue that I want to sort of uh, uh, look at from the viewpoint of the contribution of, uh, of art is essentially the question of objectivity. And we will see in a little bit how artists have really engaged with the very idea that science gives us an objective picture of, of reality. Um, and then my, the last step in, in my journey will be looking at the challenges, very contemporary challenges, that come from the practice of visualizing large data sets. This is something which is a big concern uh, in contemporary uh, science. And this is also one of the concerns that uh, sort of prompts a lot of artists in residence collaborations, which are kind of uh, very timely uh, at, at this moment. And I want to look at what kind of role should artists have in, in this kind of, uh, uh, of process. Uh, so I will start from uh, my idea of how art has questioned uh, the idea that science is about idealizing. And I need to start uh, uh, far away in time, in the 18th century. Some of you might be familiar with this image. It's taken from one of the most famous uh, anatomical atlases. Uh, this is Bernard Siegfried Albinus. Uh, and the atlas is the tables of the skeleton and the muscles of the human body. It's a, I, I, I'm pretty sure that many of you have come across this picture because it has such an iconic uh, status when we think about uh, anatomy uh, as a discipline. And I've always been very intrigued by this picture. The skeleton for one thing, it looks so slender. And this is exactly what Albinus was after. He was looking for not my skeleton or your skeleton, he was looking for the perfect skeleton. So his kind of way of going about representations was essentially we need to 
generalize from individual instances and our anatomical uh, tables in order to teach anatomy to students are essentially um, uh, a way of teaching the ideal rather than individual instances. And this is how he phrases it. He says, and as skeletons differ from one another, not only as to the age, sex, stature, and per perfection of the bones, but likewise in the marks of strength, make and beauty of the whole, I made choice of one that might discover signs of both strength and agility, the whole of it elegant and at the same time not too delicate, so as neither to show juvenile or feminine roundness and slenderness, nor on the contrary, an unpolished roughness or clumsiness. In short, all the parts of it beautiful and pleasing to the eye. For as I wanted to show an example of nature, I chose to take to take it from the best pattern in nature. So one of the rep representative ideals, and a few scholars have been writing about this, uh, one of the representative ideas of 18th century, especially anatomy, but this extends to botany, for example, was uh, let's collect individual instances, and rather than representing individuals with their imperfections, let's just come up with the perfect skeleton, the perfect botanical specimen. Now, there are things that very few scholars say about uh, these representations, and it's here that the collaboration between art and science uh, becomes crucial. So, um, Albinus was not drawing his own tables. Um, you find that the tables are usually attributed to him, but in fact, there was a very patient artist working together with, with Albinus. His name was Jan Bandelar. He, was, he, sp he lived with Albinus for over 40 years, um, and he spent most of his time actually being bullied by Albinus, who was uh, uh, sort of trying uh, to get him uh, to come up with the perfect skeleton. There was a very particular method of going about skeletons, so what uh, uh, Vandelaar was supposed to do was work through a very complicated system of double grids that would allow eventually and several skeletons so that all the individual specimens would be transposed on this system of doubled grids, would be drawn, first of all, in a life size, uh, in, in life size and then transposed into a smaller uh, version. Um, and this was a process that was frustrating, probably, very mathematical, very precise. And at some point, Albinus, uh, in actually uh, coming up with, uh, uh, with these very, the, the illustrations of this very atlas, just becomes fed up. And there is a really nice passage reported by uh, Albinus himself in which Ian, Ian Vandeler uh, essentially says, well, now we've done the skeletons. How about the backgrounds? Because you see, if we squeeze a massive rhino in the background of the plates, the light on the skeletons will look so much better. And he got his way. And this is why you find a skeleton combined, strangely enough, with a massive rhinoceros in the background. Note that the date of these uh, plates uh, is 1747, and there was a massive fascination for the rhino, which was considered an exotic uh, rarity uh, at, at the time. 
And it turns out that that rhino, whose name is actually Clara and was in Leuven in 1727, um, that rhino is just one big representation of something that Bandelar was really obsessing about. So I did a little bit of digging, and it turns out that in 1727, so that is exactly 20 years before the completion of the tables of Albinus, um, of Albinus anatomical tables, Bandelar had been drawing and obsessing about the rhino. Um, this is a page from a Dutch book written by uh, Peter Kolb, an explorer who had gone um, uh, 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 to explore the Cape of Good Hope and the flora and fauna of the Cape of Good Hope. And he came back with these huge reports about what a rhino looks like. And Ian Bandelar in 1727 had actually been commissioned to reproduce the illustrations of the translation of this book. Um, what Vandelar is asked to do is draw a rhinoceros in the style in which uh, the rhinoceros was usually portrayed. And this is a tradition that goes all the way back to Dürer. If anyone uh, is familiar with Dürer's 1515 uh, image of the rhinoceros, you will spot, uh, I see people nodding, which is great, <laughs> you will spot very clear similarities, uh, especially, so, uh, what Dürer did with his representation of the rhinoceros was the roughness of the skin of the rhinoceros was somehow uh, transposed into an armor. Uh, and that's because perceptually that was probably the, most, the simplest way to think about roughness of the skin of the animal. And then what Dürer does, which Vandelaar does in this particular picture, is uh, he places a spurious horn which is clearly an indication of the fact that people at the time had no sense of the distinction between an Indian rhino, which has only one horn, and an African rhino, which has two horns. So coming across a description that says the rhino has two horns, people were slightly at a loss. And so where do we place the second one? Well, on, on the neck, somewhere, where it fits. Um, now, what happens with this illustration is that when Vandelaar is commissioned to make this kind of illustration, he is specifically requested to do a Dürer-like picture, because that's what people were used to at the time. Except that he looks at the description and he says, well, hang on a second, this is not quite right. So in fact, he comes up with two pictures, okay? One is uh, this one, the rhinoceros as it had been commonly depicted, and the second is this, this one, the rhinoceros according to this description, where the rhino has two horns, both in the right place, and a rather smooth skin. Now, this is before the time in which Linnaeus came up with the appropriate classification of the Indian and African variety of rhinos. So this is a very important point in history where an artist actually comes up with a very important piece of classificatory uh, in insight, if not evidence, that really contributes to the growth of science. And it's exactly these, so so what, what Bandler, Bandler's obsession with the rhino and what is in the background of the plates of Albinus illustration has a, a really nice and interesting and glorious story which has to do with uh, uh, things that not, don't necessarily uh, appear in the foreground of the paintings. Um, and it still tells a story about how the collaborations between artists and scientists eventually resulted in productive insights even for the person 
purposes of classification. And I'm pretty sure that if we go through all the tables, uh, we can spot uh, things that have to do with the background and that clearly evidence uh, that Van der Laar just didn't simply listen to what his scientist was telling him, but he actually intervened in the paintings. The other interesting thing in this particular painting is that it goes completely against what Albinus wanted to achieve. Albinus wanted to achieve the ideal skeleton. And what Vandeler does is he places in the background a particular, not an ideal rhino, okay? And this is, uh, this is really interesting because this is how an artist sidesteps the kind of criteria that were really part of what scientists were trying to do with their representations. And Albinus uh, thinks that he needs to apologize about this. So um, in another uh, place in, in, in his anatomical treatise, uh, at the end, uh, just uh, after the tables, he says, we conclude this table in the eight by exhibiting in the background the figure of a female rhinoceros that was shown to us in the beginning of the year 1742, being two years and a half old, as the keepers reported. Her name was Clara. She was two years and a half old. She was Definitely not an ideal rhinoceros. Uh, we thought the rarity <coughs> of the beast would render these figures a bit more agreeable than any other ornament resulting from mere fancy. The figures are just and of a magnitude proportionable to the human figure contained in the two tables. So there is a sense in which the scientist says it is acceptable to have this animal here because it respects the proportions. However, it is a particular and not an ideal uh, representation. So this is uh, my first, uh, uh, the first part of my story about how artists productively challenged a lot of the uh, concepts and ideas that scientists take, take for granted. And that had a very productive effect. Uh, not the least because it was essentially the combination of the skeleton and the rhino that made Albinus' uh, representation being one of the most characteristic anatomical repre representation for over a hundred years. So that really dominated anatomical training for over a hundred years. Um, I want now to move to a different uh, set of uh, ideas associated with the practice of science, and I want to move a little bit more forward in time. I want to move to the time that has often been described as a time, the time of the birth of the concept of objectivity. And th this is the time in which somehow photography, in particular, but a lot of other recording instruments, made their first appear, appearance in, uh, in science. And uh, uh, the historians Lorraine Dasson and Peter Gallison, is in a really interesting book called Objectivity, trace the, hi the history of the concept of objectivity, and they really place it, uh, place its birth, essentially, um, more or less in the middle of the 19th century, which was a time in which uh, um, scientific instruments, recording instruments, uh, um, uh, became part of, ingra very ingrained in the, in the um, practice of, of science. Uh, Dustin and Gallison tell us that uh, one type of mechanically produced image, the photograph, became the emblem for all aspects of non-interventionist objectivity, and we will see what this means in one second. This was not because the photograph was more obviously faithful to nature than handmade images, but because the camera apparently 
eliminated human agency. So the claim that Lorraine Duston and Peter Gallison are making is essentially that the appearance of recording instruments made somehow images less man-made and more, and kind of devolved the role of objectivity to the machine. The general idea there is we have the machine, we can do without sort of human agency in, in the picture. Um, and one thing that these two authors do is, uh, that these historians do, is essentially look at instances in which the rhetoric of objectivity is essentially associated to the idea of the machine eliminating agency. I think the story is a little bit more subtle and it's a lot more complicated. Um, and there is a really nice interesting story that Lauren Duston and Peter Gallison don't tell us, which has more to do with the connections between artistic photography and scientific photography. So what you have with the birth of photography is scientists really acclaiming the arrival of the first daguerreotype as, um, uh, as a new eye at the disposal of the physicist. This is how um, uh, uh, it was initially presented. Now we've got a mechanical eye. We can do away with our human imperfections, our human limitations. We've got the machine that does it uh, for us. Um, but at the same time, while scientists were acclaiming the arrival of photography for various purposes, artists were actually reacting to it quite uh, in, in a quite polemic way. So this is a beautiful piece published in a journal called Camera Works, and we will go back to this journal in, in one moment, in which the pictorialist photographer Edward Staken is explicitly making fun of this scientific attitude. And this is one of my favorite quotes in the whole history of art and science. Steichen says, someday there may be invented a machine that needs but to be wound up and sent roaming over the hill and dale, through fields and meadows, by bubbling brooks and shady woods. In short, a machine that will discriminatingly select its subject and by means of a skillful arrangement of springs and screws, compose its motive, expose the plate, develop, print, and even mount and frame the result of its excursion so that there will remain nothing for us artists to do but send it to the Royal Photographic Society's exhibition and gratefully receive the Royal Medal. So what Steichen is saying is you scientists are really thinking that you can get to this idea of objectivity but look there is a lot there are a lot of other things that come and feed into the practice of photography um, and so uh, uh, the, the metaphor of the machine that, that, that does everything by itself. Steichen belonged to a whole group of uh, artists who called themselves pictorialist photographers and the kind of uh, uh, the way in which a pictorialist photographer would go about photography was by intervening directly on the plates and the general thinking there was uh, Photography as an art needs to be sort of understood on an equal ground as, photography, uh, as, as painting, essentially. And there is also a sense in which the subjectivity of the artist was an explicit element of resistance to the objectivity preached by the scientists. So what the pictorialists would do, really, was show that here is what we can do with your objective images. We intervene on them, and then they are not objective anymore. What, who tells us that the image from the camera is actually an objective image and there is no agency uh, intervening? 
Um, so what you have at the beginning uh, when photography makes it on the historical scene is a polarization between the scientific understanding of photography, which did not last long, but for a while was a very strong approach. Here is the machine and we can do away with human agency. And then you've got the artists resisting on the other side, going like, well, actually, there is a lot of human agency in photography and we really want to bring that to the fore. But what I'm interested in is actually a, a photographer who has been praised for the objectivity of his photographs. His name is Alfred Stiglitz, and he is quite well known as the father of modern avant-garde photography and the father of photography as a form of art in its own right. Now, I became intrigued in Stiglitz and in his practice uh, because I stumbled on this particular quote which is from Marius Desaias, a very famous and influential critic uh, at the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, Desaias says, the desire of modern plastic expression has been to create for itself an objectivity. The task accomplished by Stiglitz photography has been to make objectivity understood, for it has given it the true importance of a natural fact. Stiglitz in America, through photography, has shown us, as far as it is possible, the objectivity of the outer world. Now, what was really strange and what really puzzled me when I first came across this quote is, why would an artist and art critic, at a time in which photography was openly reacting against the objectivity of uh, uh, scientific photography, um, why would an artist make a claim like this? So I started digging a little bit, and again, I stumbled on something which was quite a revelation, that is, what Stiglitz was thinking about was a very complicated notion of objectivity, which was, in fact, grounded in scientific practice, and it was a lot more sophisticated than we've got the camera and that's all we need, and it was also a lot more complicated than we are artists, we can do what we want with the photographs. What Stiglitz comes up with is an idea of straight photography, which was his main uh, achievement, and straight photography is uh, essentially photography as the result, an, an, a non-modified print, which is the result of a process of experimental inquiry. And this is again one of the magical moments in which ideas from art and ideas from science collide and uh, produce a really interesting uh, not only scientific and artistic concept, but also a concept which is useful in philosophical terms. So this is one example of what Stiglitz means by straight and modified print. This is a photograph which has been extremely influential in the history of uh, photography and in the history of art. It's called the steerage. And usually historians of art talk about this picture as a picture about class, um, a picture about uh, with, a lot, with uh, political implications and without wanting to deny the political and social implications of this photograph, which have been explored uh, quite broadly anyway, what I want to say is that what is captured here is essentially a product of experimental inquiry in, in Stiglitz's uh, sense. Um, it turns out that Stiglitz 
did not come up from one day to the other with this idea that we should not modify our prints and that we still, but that, but that photography is still the, pro, the process of a trained uh, observer. In fact, again, part of my digging uh, led me to find out that uh, actually Stiglitz had had a quite thorough uh, scientific training. He had, a, he had been a pupil of um, August Hoffman in the 1880s in Berlin, and Hoffman is one of the most important figures in the transition from uh, analytic to synthetic chemistry. Um, he is also one of uh, the major figures behind the introduction and dis discovery and introduction of aniline dyes, which were essential to the development of photography itself. Um, Stiglitz had also been a student uh, for a short time of Hermann Vogel, who had been one of the main propo proponents of photography as a science in its own right. What he says is that uh, photography should be put on an equal ground, the science of photography, as uh, chemistry and physics more broadly. Now, what these two scientists had in common was, of course, uh, a strong emphasis on the kind of technical side of photography, which is pretty much what allowed Stiglitz uh, to come up with brilliant experimentation, such as this one. This is one of the first photographs, um, which was which, uh, the first night exposure photographs, okay, uh, which was an extremely difficult procedure uh, at the time. And the kind of play of lights in this photograph shows extreme skill uh, on the part of the photographer, okay. Um, so there was a sense in which Stiglitz's technical background uh, and the underpinning of science in his technical background was one of the ways in which art and science converged in his practice, but I want to go beyond that. So what both Hoffman and Vogel as scientists were very much promoting was a whole ethos of the laboratory. So Hoffman was one of the first people who brought chemistry out of the lecture room and straight into practice, into laboratory practice. And he construed practice as learning together, observing the same things and negotiating those observations. And so what you have is a whole, and, and Vogel was pretty much endorsing that mode of working as well. Um, so in, uh, for example, Stiglitz, a, a, a student paper by Stiglitz really praises Vogel's practice for the emphasis on the community-based ethos that emerges in a laboratory context. Uh, so this is uh, what really, I think, influenced Stiglitz's idea of objectivity. No, not so much uh, the kind of science underpinning photography, but the fact that science is about collective observation. It's about a particular ethos in which people spend a lot of time together within a laboratory, and they kind of absorb that kind of training of the eye and coordination between eyes and hands. And it is not a coincidence that Stiglitz himself, uh, later on, called his, his galleries uh, uh, his experimental stations. Uh, this is a report, again, from Marius de Zayas, who says that it should be remembered that the little gallery, which is Stiglitz, uh, the name of Stiglitz gallery, is nothing more than a laboratory, an experimental station, and must not be looked upon as an art gallery in the ordinary sense of the term. So what you have there is a collective group of photographers who are really thinking about the practice of photography as a process of experimental inquiry within an experimental 
experimental setting, an experimental station or a laboratory rather than an art gallery. And this is one of the reasons, uh, I think, at least this is one of my conjectures, this is one of the reasons uh, why Stiglitz uh, eventually managed to bring a lot of uh, very conceptual avant-garde art uh, from Europe to the States. He kind of prepared the reception of the nice connections between art and science that informed a lot of modernism. And that is what gave Stiglitz the possibility of seeing the potential into modernist uh, art in the very first place. Um, this is also somehow uh, what for Stiglitz becomes uh, there is more to photography than just capturing an image, okay? So what you have is reports about how he takes his photographs. Uh, here he is commenting on a photograph that had been taken in a massive snowstorm uh, in 1897 uh, in New York. And he says, in order to obtain pictures by means of the hand camera, which was one of the innovations of the time, it is well to choose your subject, regardless of figures, and carefully study the lines and lighting. After having determined upon these, watch the passing figures and await the moment in which everything is in balance that is satisfies your eye. This often means hours of patient waiting and he did wait for at least a couple of hours in the snow to take some of his most famous snowstorm um, photographs and when I think about the kind of attitude of self-sacrifice for the sake of photography that Stiglitz seems to display I cannot avoid thinking about the stories that philosophers uh, uh, know quite well about how Sir Francis Bacon died in the freezing cold um, for the sake of the experimental method. There is a very common rhetoric there. We do something for the sake of science and that implies a certain amount of uh, self-sacrifice. This is clearly a kind of rhetorical um, mode that is taken uh, from science. Um, so rather than fo straight photography as objective photography, here you have a very uh, interesting problematization of what counts as objectivity. And if anything, for Stiglitz, objectivity is the result of a process of judgment that comes from a trained eye, trained eye in a laboratory context. And I want to move on to my last case study, which is uh, a case study I'm very attached to because uh, it's, it belongs to UCL. It's a very UCL type of enterprise. Um, so I want to move to more modern times, and I want to think a little bit about what it means nowadays to visualize large data sets and what kind of role artists can play uh, in that. So this is a, uh, a, an artwork called A Planetary or Order, and it was uh, um, made by an artist uh, who is based here at the Slade School of Art. It was the result of an artist in residence uh, program at the UCL Environment Institute. Um, and what the, um, this artwork is about is essentially a visualization of cloud patterns that covered the Earth on a specific day 2nd of February 2009 at 6 o'clock sharp, okay? So what the artist did was he collected numerical readings, essentially, he collected raw data from various satellites, cloud mon monitoring satellites from NASA and the European Space Agency. And then he, from these data, he created a 3D model and then the 3D model was 3D printed. Uh, and here is uh, his, uh, his artwork. 
what this artwork is about is, uh, in one sense, the kind of fragility of our environmental system, construed as a system. But it is also, how do we give a physical form? How do we actually visualize data that are considered to be sort of uh, numerical or or a huge data sets that need to sort of find an image in order to become concretely valuable. And what I like about this project and what I think is really important about this project is that, is that it really addresses the question of are there any raw data? And does the quantity of data, which is now a very important issue in scientific practice, we've got these huge data sets. And once we've got the huge data sets, we've got everything. As long as we've got quantity, then we can solve all the problems of the world. Well, this artwork really challenges the idea that quantity of data gives uh, our scientific enterprises their validity. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, it really brings to the fore the fact that uh, data are always interpreted. Uh, according to uh, certain practices and according to the kind of purposes, scientific purposes uh, that we have. Uh, and this is how, so this artwork became the very iconic image of a book that I warmly recommend called Data Soliloquies. Just the title, I think, is, is, is brilliant. Um, and this is how uh, Martin Callanan, working with Richard Hamblin during their Artist in Residence program, this is how they describe the aims of this book. They say data soliloquies reflect uh, the ways in which scientific graphs and images often have powerful stories to tell, carrying much in the way of overt and implied narrative content, but also that these stories or narratives are rarely interrupted or interrogated. And that is where I see the role of the artists nowadays uh, um, being particularly important. Sometimes, uh, and this is uh, uh, somehow the conclusions that I want to draw from all my case studies. Sometimes there is a sense in which the role of art, uh, in, especially in art and science collaboration, is very similar to the role of philosophy of science, which is uh, the field where I do most of my work. And in both cases, uh, what you find is that philosophers as much as artists challenge, disturb, and criticize what uh, all the kind of concepts that scientists take for granted. And I think even just questioning the rhetoric of data is an important step forward, considering that data are such a, the idea of data is such a foundational issue in, in scientific practice. So with this, I want to conclude, and I want to say that if we go all the way back and we look at history, uh, what we can derive from that history is that artistic visualization has often served as critique. I don't want to make a blanket cover for that. I don't want to say that all art uh, should be critique of science. But we have now come to terms that art has political implications, and we are happy with that, and that art actually has a, can, can do something when it comes to political issues. My suggestion is why not thinking about the same thing with respect to scientific practice? And this is a much more uh, important issue if you think about the ways uh, artists in residence programs go nowadays and uh, about how artists being relegated in the corner of, of a laboratory often counts as an artist in, in, in residence program. I, my idea is that we should probably cherish the critical role of, uh, of art when 
there is a particularly magical moment and when art and science uh, collide. So what I want is uh, I want to foster the healthy role of controversy and history tells us that there were many, so we should look at history a lot more. I want, to, I want my argument to be both descriptive of artistic and scientific practice, but also a normative one. We should encourage artists to take this critical role. Um, and I want to go beyond the idea of art as a mere tool for illustrating science. So one of my favorite artists once upon a time said, uh, Pablo Picasso once upon a time said, that art is not made to decorate apartments. And to that I would like to add that maybe art is not made to decorate laboratories either. So in both cases there is a sense in which art can have a strong critical role and uh, um, my idea of artistic visualization as critique aims to foster that critical role and promote it. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much, Chiara. Very interesting indeed. Now, it's time for a few questions. Um, it's open to the floor. That one at the back there. Uh, so sorry for my bad English. Uh, you say that a critical role of artists is more important than a uh, designing role uh, because they play a huge role in the designing uh, sharp uh, sh shape of uh, modern te technology. It's, it's more important a critical role than uh, everyday work. I mean, a critical role can be embedded in the everyday work of an artist. I mean, I'm thinking about the poor Ian Bandelar. He was doing that for, on a daily basis for a good 40 years. So I think uh, there is a sense in which uh, uh, that can be part of the daily work of an artist. What I really want is uh, to raise awareness about that critical ability of art, because that is really one of the strong points of artistic practice. And sometimes artists do it without necessarily being aware of that. So what I would like to uh, bring uh, to everybody's attention is that we should probably cherish that critical role rather than thinking that it's part of our daily practice and so whether we think about it or not, it's okay. I was just going to ask, um, why should science listen to you? Oh, <laughs> because, uh, because scientists are worried about a lot of the same things that artists are worried about. So when it comes to data visualization, what often happens is that uh, scientists do and reach out for artists, okay? And then when you ask scientists what's the role of art in your practice, they say, oh, well, that stuff is just an artist's impression of what we are doing. So, I mean, there is this kind of tension, especially nowadays, uh, between uh, um, 
artists really looking for new modes of visualization, scientists really looking for new modes of visualization, and then denying the role of artistic practice because after all it's just artistic practice. And what I want again is raise awareness even in the kind of field of science, that there is a very genuine contribution available there and that we should probably like open up the boundaries of science to kinds of practices that feed into it and that contribute to its growth. There's a question just here. Um, I'm looking at the epistemological content of the last statement uh -huh. and I'm wondering if art can act as a tool in that it is an avenue to modality, and by that I mean it opens up realms of possibility otherwise not seen necessarily in just scientific practice. Definitely, that's is a really that nice philosophical spin on that, but definitely uh, uh, there is a sense in which having a challenge on, it, so if you are worried about the validity of scientific knowledge, okay, I wouldn't be worried about art undermining the validity of scientific claims, okay. W on the contrary, what you have is an opening up of new avenues uh, that is beneficial to the growth of science. Not necessarily actualizations, but possibilities. Possibilities, definitely, definitely. In the interest of time, unfortunately, I think I'll have to arrest the questioning just at this point. But it's been a, a very interesting and nicely philosophical talk. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you. <laughs>